This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 23rd of October. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Israel's intensifying strikes on Gaza as it appears to be ramping up preparations for a ground assault. Aid is arriving into the Strip, but hospitals say they're lacking medicine and are unable to cope with the rising number of injured Palestinians. Fierce fighting is also erupting on the northern border with Lebanon as the Israeli military engages with Hezbollah militants. Alison Horn is in Ashdod in southern Israel. It's been a massive increase in militarised behaviour around here. We are seeing thousands of troops everywhere we go. Roads that we had been previously travelling on in the last few days have all been shut down. There are military checkpoints everywhere. We're seeing thousands of army tanks and trucks that have got dozens of army personnel in the back of them just going along the road. So certainly a massive amount of military activity around here, more than we have seen at any point in the last couple of weeks. And on top of that, we know that there is also this massive increase in the number of airstrikes going into Gaza as well as Israel has signified. They've said in their words, uh, this significant increase to try and get optimal conditions, that's the wording that they're using, optimal conditions uh, in Gaza before they try and launch this ground offensive. At the same time, we have seen today something pretty unusual as well, a big decrease in the number of rockets actually coming out of Gaza. These are Hamas rockets. Every day, it's just been a constant barrage of rockets uh, coming out of Gaza and then Israeli airstrikes. Today, I think I can count on one hand the number of barrages that we've seen actually coming out of Gaza, and and that is by far the lowest amount of uh, rockets we've seen in this two-week war. And I, I think it probably signifies that Hamas is now taking stock of their reserves and, and really reserving some of that firepower that they have on their side until this ground offensive starts. The death and injury toll is getting worse in Gaza. Some aid is getting through. Is it enough? Well, the UN says it's just a trickle, really. Uh, yesterday, we saw 20 trucks go through the Egypt border crossing, the Rafa crossing, and today about another 20 trucks as well. Now, that, this is carrying vital humanitarian aid, food, water and medical supplies to hundreds of thousands of people that we know are suffering through this uh, catastrophic humanitarian crisis. We've heard horrific stories that people are having maybe even uh, just one meal a day. They're drinking dirty water if they do have water at all. A number of hospitals have had to close. Doctors are operating with um, without uh, anaesthesia. They have run out of medicine. So these are urgently needed supplies, but it's not enough according to the United Nations. They say that at least 100 trucks is needed per day. At the moment, there's 20. That's Middle East correspondent Alison Horn in Ashdod in southern Israel. The troubled snowy 2.0 pumped hydro project ignored warnings and pushed ahead with tunnelling despite vital equipment not being on site. The Four Corners investigations found this was a $2 billion mistake after a giant tunnel boring machine got stuck. Angus Grigg reports. The ground is a little bit wet. 
and can be a little bit unstable. I'm underground at Snowy 2.0, being shown around by Chief Executive Dennis Barnes. Supposed to step hazards. He's only been in the job since February and has just announced the project will cost $12 billion, six times the initial estimate. I'm here to complete the project. We're 40% of the way in. We've learned a lot. We've now got a contract reset, a way of working reset, which I believe will deliver. But Barnes can't escape Snowy 2.0's troubled history. A giant tunnel boring machine known as Florence is stuck just 150 metres into its 15 kilometre journey after hitting soft ground. So Florence got stuck or paused in uh, December 2022 after the occurrence of a sinkhole or a hole just above the machine. Four Corners has found early decisions doomed Florence's progress. A crucial piece of equipment to deal with soft ground was not connected. This so-called slurry plant was not even on site. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was an early champion of Snowy 2.0. If you're going to be dealing with soft ground that needs to be slurried and you don't have the slurrying kit, you've screwed up, haven't you? This decision to not connect the slurry system went against the project's own guidelines for the tunnel boring machine. Until now, the price tag for Florence's troubles has never been revealed. Snowy Hydro confirmed to Four Corners it has cost the project $2 billion. You can't live your life backwards and mistakes happen and that was an expensive one. Snowy's contractor, Future Generation, says its operation method for the tunnel boring machine was appropriate. Its guidelines allowed for discretion in how Florence was operated. Critics like energy analyst Danny Price say these cost blowouts and delays are a result of the project being rushed in its early stages when the former coalition government was in power. I knew it was just going to be an absolute dog of a project. And I thought, this is going to be the most expensive photo opportunity in Australia's history. That's energy analyst Danny Price ending Angus Griggs' report. And you can see the full story 8.30 tonight on ABC TV or anytime on ABC's iView. It's been a wild ride in Australia's electricity markets over the past 18 months, as we've just pointed out. But wholesale prices have eased significantly, falling to their lowest level in two years. Despite the fall, most consumers are being warned not to expect any immediate relief in their bills as the costs of last year's energy crisis take a lasting toll. Here's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. Like millions of Australians, Marlene Connor is a solar householder. She lives in Horsham, about three and a half hours northwest of Melbourne, and bought the panels a few years ago thanks to a government subsidy scheme. I'm just waiting to hear back about the new government incentive to upgrade what I've got to make it even cheaper. While the installation might have made a big dent in her bills initially, she says the effect is wearing off as electricity prices rise. When I got it on, every three months I'd get about $250 off my bill, right? Now, these days, I get about $3.50 off. Isn't that pissy? Excuse the French. It's a familiar story for many electricity customers hit hard by extraordinary price rises over the past 16 months. Benchmark tariffs have rocketed almost 50% since mid-last year as the effects of an unprecedented energy crisis washed through the system. The Australian energy market operator suggests the wholesale market has largely recovered to pre-crisis levels. A new report from the agency shows wholesale power prices fell 41% to $63 a megawatt hour in the three months to the end of September, compared with the previous quarter. They're down a whopping 71% on the same period last year. 
Bruce Mountain, the head of the Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. I think the big factors that explain the change is uh, international traded coal prices have declined greatly from their peaks. Uh, They're at around a third of the level they were at their peak. And our gas price, short-term gas price, although not plumbing the lows at once it was at, is half the level at its peak. And uh, gas and coal essentially determine the prices when wind and solar are not dominant. uh, And they have the biggest effect on peak and average prices. Renewable energy production accounted for almost 40% of generation in the September quarter. Bruce Mountain notes that while renewable energy output is reaching ever-new highs, Australia's power system is still heavily reliant on and exposed to fossil fuels. There's a big gap between what's known as the spot market, which is the prompt market, and prices that customers experience. Most of the electricity sold to customers faces a price that has swapped the variable exposure in the prompt market for a fixed price in the same way that most households will swap variable interest rates for fixed ones for varying periods of time. Uh, And so there's a lag between the change in spot prices and the change in prices that customers see. Solar householder Marlene Connor is backing the switch to renewable energy, but she also wants power bills to remain affordable. I'd prefer to keep it clean, yeah, but um, at the same time... Being a pensioner, every dollar counts, doesn't it? Solar householder Marlene Connor, ending that report by Daniel Mercer. Chris Bowen is the Federal Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Chris Bowen, welcome to AM. Does this report mean that consumers will see cheaper prices next year or ongoing downward pressure? Well, the downward pressure is encouraging, uh, Sabra, but of course we have more work to do. But what this underlines is that it is a fact that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy and the fact that solar production in particular was up so much has led to uh, very uh, reduced wholesale prices, $63 a megawatt hour, which is down 71% from the same time the year before. Uh, That's a good thing. Uh, And, of course, it's an encouraging development. Yeah, so prices next year will be based on the wholesale prices this year, so you'll have your fingers crossed? Well, wholesale prices is one of the key inputs. It's not the only input to retail prices, but it's one of the key inputs. And, of course, it's a it's a very handy forward indicator. Now, we're not declaring victory. We're not saying that there aren't other pressures in the system, of course, in the global energy market. But the fact that we have seen such a big lift and that, indeed, we've seen the highest uh, renewable proportion for any uh, third quarter, and in fact, 70% of NEM generation came from renewable sources for a half an hour period, which is only a half an hour period, but it shows what is possible with the right policy uh, framework, the right policy environment and the right investment environment. We're heading into a El Nino summer with hotter and drier conditions. Air conditioning use could be well up than uh, normal this coming summer. Demand for coal and gas with the northern winter and the wars that we're seeing in the northern hemisphere might increase too, which could make running the national energy grid this summer extremely challenging, couldn't it? Well, that was uh, that's what I was referring to and I said we're not claiming victory and there are other challenges and pressures in the market as well. We are in for a long, hot summer, Sabra. You can't avoid that, but you can prepare for it uh, and we have been preparing for it. It's one of the impacts of climate change, of course. Uh, climate change is now a lived reality and it means that longer, 
hotter summers are something we have to get more used to. Uh, we'll put some pressure on the grid, but AEMO is working very closely with the federal government, with all the state governments, to make sure that we're prepared. We've seen uh, an improvement in connections time. We're getting more energy into the system. We have been uh, going through uh, a process of summer readiness for some months now. Uh, when you know that a long, hot summer is coming, uh, the right thing to do is to prepare for it, and that's what this government does. With the additional renewable energy capacity joining this grid, the stability of the system is going to be an ongoing issue. Additional firming capacity is still needed to ensure a steady supply when the sun and wind aren't generating power. Can the government put a time frame on when stability will cease to be a big issue? One of the biggest challenges to stability is, frankly, uh, coal-fired power station outages that were unexpected. I mean, we saw a big impact when the Calide power station in Queensland uh, went offline a few years ago and is still not yet back online. I don't think we can just put all the pressure on renewables for stability and reliability. We have 3.4 gigawatts more going into this summer than we had last summer of uh, generation. That's a good thing. Uh, Yes, we need more storage. Uh, We have policies in place to get that through our capacity investment scheme, which we've already begun rolling out. This is an ongoing task for governments and will continue to be. One of the storage issues into the future will be the Snowy 2.0 project. Four Corners has taken a look at it and it's had some big problems. Do you think it's still good value for taxpayer dollars? It's costing $2 billion extra because the appropriate machinery for boring through soft soils wasn't on site despite advice that it should be? Of the things that I saw when we came to office and the briefings I received, uh, the state of Snowy 2.0 was very high on the list of things which deeply concerned me. And the lack of public disclosure of the delays and the blowouts deeply concerned me. But I must say, uh, we have been working hard with Snowy uh, Hydro Management. The new CEO, Dennis Barnes, is doing a first-class job with his management team and with the thousands of workers on the site. Uh, And it's important to say this is not their fault. Uh, The thousands of workers on the site are doing a good job. Uh, Should things have been done better and differently when the project was being designed uh, by Snowy Management? Yes. Is Snowy Management doing a good job to turn that around now? Yes. Could I just touch on your electorate? It's got a high percentage of Australians with Muslim ancestry. How concerned are you about ongoing social cohesion here with the events playing out in Israel and the Gaza? It's important in this very difficult time in the Middle East to know that you can uh, believe in the legitimate aspirations and rights of the Palestinian people without exonerating in any sense the heinous acts of Hamas and condemning those. You can also believe in the right of Israel to exist and to defend itself uh, without expressing concern about the loss of innocent life of Palestinians who do not support Hamas and had nothing to do with Hamas. You can believe, as I do, that Israel will only truly be free and secure when Palestine will be free and secure. You can believe all the above. I think it's important for all of us in uh, leadership positions to express uh, our solidarity with the people of Israel, uh, but also our concerns for the legitimate concerns of the Palestinian people. Uh, We can and do that. I I have been concerned by the politicisation of this issue by some in the Australian 
uh, political debate, you know, uh, demanding uh, stronger statements and stronger actions, when really I think the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister and the Government have set a very important and considered tone, and I think it's vital that the community hears that tone. And, of course, the final point, Sabra, is that there is absolutely no place in modern Australia for anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Both should be equally condemned, uh, and in an environment like this, it's particularly important to do so. Chris Bowen, thanks for talking to AM. Always a pleasure, Sabra. And Mr Bowen's the Federal Energy and Climate Change Minister. Indigenous groups who supported the Voice to Parliament referendum campaign have ended their week of silence with a 12-point statement saying the results mean-spirited and appalling and they'll consult about setting up the voice independently. The statement, which has no signatories to it, thanks supporters but says the referendum unleashed a tsunami of racism, that lies were a primary feature of the campaign and mainstream media failed Indigenous Australians. National Indigenous correspondent Carly Williams reports from Yarrabah in far north Queensland. Tropical jungle, kids riding horses bareback on the beach. Yarrabah is like a postcard of paradise. But the Aboriginal community, about an hour's drive from Cairns, battles more grief and loss than most. Uh, this year we had uh, uh, about 40, 40 deaths and um, sometimes the funerals would be two, two a week. It was um, pretty sad, you know, because it's, uh, the grief in the community is quite heavy. Father Les walks me through Yarrabah's cemetery, a place he says will soon be running out of room. The statistics are, continue to widen and that's the reason why the community was hoping for a yes vote at the referendum. More than 75% of Yarrabah voted to be recognised in the constitution hoping an enshrined voice would also help address the town's housing crisis, where there can be around 15 people in one home. Australia rejected the voice proposal, the highest no vote coming from Queensland. The results left Yarrabah Mayor Ross Andrews feeling low. Very disappointing to see that um, Queensland uh, has really let us down. Not everyone in Yarrabah voted yes, including Dad Ben Whittle. Trust would be the main thing. I've never really trusted what our, what our, what our government has said, um, and that's just going back from past um, experiences, living here in community and elsewhere and working elsewhere, and a lot of people are still struggling, myself included. So, uh, yeah. Others, like traditional owner Auntie Janine Yeatman, were on board. Yeah, I hear a lot of people saying this. There wasn't enough time, there wasn't enough explanation around Australia to explain what this... Um, referendum was all about. But the majority of us here in Yarrabah, we understood it, it wasn't to divide us, no way. It was to unite us and also to get that bloody recognition of we are the First Nations people of this country. The way forward for many First Nations people is treaty, an agreement made between two parties shaped by historical, social and political background. Auntie Janine has a clear message for Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, who warned treaty in Queensland would need bipartisan support. I'll be saying, hey, sis, just go ahead, you and your government, go ahead because... You you have the majority of Indigenous people behind you. Go for it. A message echoed by the Chief Executive at Yarrabah's Guruni Yalamaka Health Services, Suzanne Andrews. My message to the Queensland Premier, don't be spooked by this. You have the massive backing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Queensland, as well as all those non-Indigenous people who voted yes. 
Suzanne Andrews is the Chief Executive of Yarrabah's Garini Yurumaka Health Services, ending that report by Carly Williams. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. While the world looks to Israel and Gaza, Russia has ramped up its offensive in Ukraine, while President Putin seeks to insert himself as a negotiator in the Middle East. Today, Matthew Sussex from the ANU's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre on what Vladimir Putin has to gain from the latest war. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.